screen later. Uh, good morning, uh, my name's Raj. Uh, uh, welcome to Jubilee Church, 10th uh, anniversary celebration service uh, for Open Door. If you're a visitor here, you are really welcome. Um, um, about uh, 15, 14 years ago now, I started coming to Jubilee Church. And as I've told few, often few pe- uh, people over the years, I was the only dark-skinned person here. Um, and isn't it wonderful now to see so many colours and nations and hearing different languages and seeing different cultures? That is Jubilee. I mean, it's fantastic. So if you are a, uh, if you're a visitor here this morning from another nation, you are really welcome. If you're an asylum seeker or if you're a refugee here this morning, you are really welcome in this church. And if you have made uh, Jubilee your home over the years or very recently, you too are extremely uh, welcome in uh, Jubilee. Also, if you're a guest here this morning uh, from another organization or another church or charity, um, I also want to thank you too for giving your all um, for, for working for Teesside, for diversity, for equality. So I just want to uh, thank you all, especially you guys who've uh, labored over the last few years in Jubilee. I'm not going to reiterate all those thanks. Um, so thank you very much. So let's read, shall we, Isaiah 61. My pockets seem as if they're bulging. Um, I've got lots of phones and whatnot in here. So, <laughs> steady. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you for that wonderful, wonderful prophetic call that you uh, gave to Isaiah and have given to us as a church. I thank you, Lord, for each and every part of it covering so many aspects of this broken world, emotional, psychological, financial, economical, every single uh, aspect. You are a God who sees all our lives. You are a God who sees towns, communities. You are a God who's involved in politics. You are a God who's involved in education. You are a God involved in every single thing. No st- stone is left unturned with you. And we pray as we look into this this morning, as we uh, look into our vision in some ways in this area, pray, Spirit of God, come upon everybody here. Come upon everybody here and ignite us with a passion um, for what you have us to do and our call to uplift and love the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized on Teesside. 
in this nation and in other nations. Amen. Right, so this morning, really, I want to speak about something that God has really been um, challenging me about over at least the last 12 months, um, um, really about why Jubilee exists and how God really has been shaping us over the last uh, few years, the recent, recent years of Jubilee, really. For those of you who've been around for a while now, you'll know that this church was really called into action some 15 years ago through these very words. Uh, that we've just read in Isaiah 61. A description of what God calls the year, or the Bible calls the year of Jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favour, as, as it's phrased in this passage. Um, some of you already know what uh, Jubilee is. We've talked about it over the years. But for those of you who haven't, have you ever wondered why we are called Jubilee? What's Jubilee? Well, the year of Jubilee was something that happened in the Jewish in Jewish law, every 50 years. Uh, you can read about it in Leviticus 50, uh, 25 if you want to. And it was pretty radical, really, because in that special year, God's people would set all their servants free. They would cancel all the debts that were owed to them. They would give back all the land they, uh, they had acquired through poor crops, through poor judgment, through poor fortune, through poor choices, whatever the reason. And it would be a great time of rejoicing, of generosity, forgiveness, celebration, and unity. Can you imagine it? If we suddenly started a law like that in this country. And really, Jubilee was God's way of reminding his people, I do not want permanent poverty, injustice, and greed in my land. A phenomenal institution, really, if you think about it, declaring the compassionate grace of God, his heart through and through. And then approximately 600 years um, on from Isaiah, Jesus sits down in the synagogue one day and launches his ministry with these very same staggering words. And so as a church, this passage has really been our heart song, our anthem, if you like, about why we exist. Do you believe God wants us to be, calls us to be increasingly, growingly, a people displaying, living out the generous justice of our God, bestowing dignity to the poor, lifting up the brokenhearted, speaking up for the marginalized, working for the betterment of our cities, our communities, and towns. And so briefly as I can really, three things this morning about the Christian understanding of what generous justice is all about and how that shapes us for the mission that God has given us, Jubilee. So first, so firstly, the importance of justice, the importance of justice. Throughout the Bible, this is God's heart, as I've already said. In fact, just a few chapters earlier from uh, Isaiah 61, in Isaiah 58, God expresses his love for the poor, the importance of justice, in a very inter uh, interesting dialogue, kind of prophetic conversation, if you like, between him and his people. He says this, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people, says God, their rebellion and sins. 
For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if, as if they were a nation that does what's right. Why have you fasted, they say, and you, and have, and, and you have not... Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed, God? That's how this conversation with God starts. What's going on? Well, well, essentially, the people of God are grumbling. They're muttering. They're getting all grumpy. They're saying, look here, God, we are doing all the stuff you want us to do. Day after day, we seek you out. Our worship is perfect. We are following all the religious rules and regulations as best we can. We're fasting. We're praying. Come on, God. Can't you see how good we are? Why are you not answering our prayers? Come on, God. Pull your socks up. That's what's going on here. And God's response is pretty startling, pretty phenomenal, really. God says, yeah, you are worshipping. Yeah, I can see that you're praying. You are fasting. You are following all the rules and regulations. But is that what you really think I want? Is that what you really think worship and knowing my ways and seeking me out is all about? Because if you do, you are mistaken, seriously mistaken. Then God shocks them into silence by saying this. Let me tell you what fasting looks like, he says. Let me tell you what worship looks like. Let me tell you what seeking me out is all about. It's this. Isaiah 58. To loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, to share your food with the hungry, and to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Wow! As I often say, that is a phenomenal statement. When they heard that, this, they would have been completely bowled over. You see, in ancient times, Family meant everything. Your family was where you got honor, dignity, and value from. The family name was important. It wasn't to be messed about with. And in many ways, this was good, but it also caused a lot of unrest. Because if you were part of another family, you would have been viewed and treated differently. You would have, had, you would have no obligation to look out for a person or persons of different families to care for them, to love for them. In fact, more often there was a lot of conflict and tribalism and racial disharmony between families. And in the midst of this divide, God thunders in and says, look, I want you to look at the poor wanderer, the impoverished person of a totally different racial background, an asylum seeker or refugee maybe, and to treat them as your own flesh and blood, your family. Why? Because they're mine, God says. And what I love and cherish with all my heart and soul, you should love and cherish too. Actually, this is a running theme throughout the Bible. In fact, the more and more you look at it, 
the more and more it hits you in the face. I was amazed when I was studying or looking through the Bible systematically about this stuff. Just, he's, an, he's one example of many. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That was radical then when they heard it. And you know what? It's radical now. Uh, a guy called Vinoth Ramachandra, a Sri Lankan Bible scholar, describes this as scandalous justice. Because it would have been scandalous to the people who heard it. In virtually all the ancient, he says this, in virtually all the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society, the important people, the kings, the priests, the military captains, not the outcasts. To oppose the leaders of society then was to oppose the gods. But here, in Israel's rival vision, it is not the high-ranking males, but the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with, God, with whom Yahweh, God, takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Wow. Matthew 25 one of the most startling and, I would say, blood-curdling teachings of Jesus summarizes and reworks and remolds, particularly Isaiah 58, but the whole of the Bible and what it says about how important generous justice to the poor and needy is to God, says this. He teaches this. And basically, he sets the scene for judgment in, March, uh, in Matthew, for judgment day in Matthew 25. And he says on judgment day... You will all be standing before me, and, you, and I will separate the sheep from the goats, and those, those who are saved and those who are lost. And this is what I will say to those who are lost. And remember, he's talking to people who think they already know God. He'll say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And then those people who were listening thought, hold on. Those people who were listening who thought their faith was vibrant and alive, who were listening, answered shocked, very shocked. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? I don't remember that happening. And Jesus says, and Jesus' reply is, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do for me. Summary. This is what Jesus says. If you don't love the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, those who others ignore and despise, then no matter what you say, you don't love me. If you don't love them, you don't love me. You don't have that close relationship with me that I want. The way you treat them tells me how you regard me. Let me put it differently. Jesus is saying generous justice, a life poured out to others, especially the poor and the vulnerable, is the grand symptom what real faith looks like, a growing relationship with God. And you know what? If you don't have it, then you don't have me, says Jesus. 
You think you do, but you don't. Ugh. Now you might be thinking, Raj, why are you calling it justice? You're making me feel like I'm breaking the law. Why not just call it what everyone else calls it, charity or goodwill? Yeah, I can see that um, not helping the poor, uh, uh, that not helping the poor and needy is a bit stingy of me. Maybe I should do it from time to time. Maybe I should do it more often. But to call it unjust when I don't give to the poor, when I don't pour out my life into the lives of the needy, I'm a very busy person. Isn't that just a bit heavy? Well, that brings me to my second point. Because that's how the Bible sees it. So what is generous justice according to the Bible? Well, to answer that question, we really need to look at a much, much bigger question. And that is, what's wrong with the world? So have you got all uh, day to talk about that? If you look around, if you look at the, uh, read the papers, if you switch on the telly, if you watch the bombings, the violence, the abuse, the poverty, the one conclusion that you must come to is that there is something, something, something fundamentally wrong in the world. And over uh, the years, many people have had many views about it, actually, but throughout history, consistently, unwaveringly, no matter what other people have said about it, Christianity has always said, and still says to this very day, that that something is sin. We don't like the word sin very much, um, do we? Two, do we? 200 years ago, the uh, big thinkers like a, a chap called Rousseau in what's called uh, the Enlightenment period of history, um, well, he was very, just like us, just like many of us, he was very um, upset at Christianity's view of sin. Rousseau argued against it fiercely. He hated the idea that people believed that we are born sinners. That that was the main problem with humanity and society and relationships. He believed that essentially we were good, that we were born innocent, and that it was the and that it was the stuff outside of us that made us into who we are, who we've become, corrupted us. He believed that if you change the things outside, it would all be okay. Things like education, economy, scientific, political, social projects. Uh, um, Progress. These were the tools that would deal with the problems of the world. We don't like Christianity's repugnant, repressive idea of sin anymore to explain things. Bin it. However, the irony is this. After 200 years, after two world wars, after global terrorism, after being so dis- disillusioned with all of our leaders and all of our cultural institutions, you know what? The philosophers, the sociologists, all the clever guys who uh, uh, talk about, write about, and look into this stuff, they're not saying that anymore. They're not so sure. They're not so sure about Rousseau's conclusions. Why, despite all the advances that we've seen over the years, is humanity becoming more and more selfish, less tolerant, less happy? That's what they're asking. Why is society breaking down at a rate uh, that we've never seen before? Why are the prisons bulging at the seams, the riots, racial hatred, divorce rates, teenage pregnancies, depression, stress, violence, and so on? What's happening? 
We've tried to change the stuff around us. We've tried to make our world better. What's going on? Why isn't it working? Rousseau, you must be wrong. And so today we kind of live in a schizophrenic world that on the one hand has thrown out the concept of sin and won't return to it, or doesn't want to return to it, but on the other, th- but on the other hand can't think of a better way to make sense of what's going on in the world. A, a guy called Andrew uh, Del Banco, um, an American professor of humanities, puts this dilemma that our culture sees so perfectly. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and sin, what we see, what we experience, and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, are making sense of it. And so now we have an inescapable problem. We feel something, we see something before our very eyes that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary or the permission to express. But the Bible never doesn't shirk this responsibility at all. The Bible describes that God created this world to be brimming with dynamic, abundant forms of life that are perfectly interwoven, interdependent, together enhancing and enriching with God, its life source at the very center. And the Hebrew word for this perfect state of affairs is shalom, peace. And to understand generous justice, we need to understand shalom in the Bible. For those of you know, uh, so I'm going, to try, I'm going to try something here. For those of you who know me, um, you'll know that my main hobby, the thing I love to do most of all, is knitting and sewing. No, it's not really. It's not really. I thought I'd get away with that because my wife's in kids' work this morning, and I thought I'd get away with that, but no. Um, it's actually watching X Factor. Very anyhow, that doesn't matter. <laughs> but just to help you understand Shalom a bit better, I'll need to pre- pretend I know something about knitting and weaving for a few minutes, so just bear with me. When you see tapestries or beautiful garments, you see that they're made up of lots and lots of threads, don't you? Interlaced, intertwined with one another. If you just chucked a thousand pieces of wool or cotton or threads onto a table, that wouldn't be a fabric, would it? That would be no use to anyone. It'd be a mess. For random threads to become a garment, they must be rightly, intimately related to one another. Each thread must go over, under, around, through the others at thousands of different points. And then, and only then, do you get a beautiful, strong fabric a fabric that's of any use. And so it is with God's design for human relationships, his shalom. You see, when people have money, resources, advantages, and they plunge them in lavishly into the human community, what do you have? You have a strong social fabric. But when those who have lots keep all of what they have, Trying, to, trying at all costs to avoid giving it away, holding on to everything, keeping their distance, not realizing that everything they have is from God, actually, is his provision. What happens then? 
the fabric of society, history tells us, the fabric of society falls apart. The complete unraveling of shalom. That's not how it's meant to be. A chap called Neil Plantigner, a Bible scholar, writes this. This webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural great gifts fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. So what's generous justice? It's this. As men and women created by God, provided, as, when, as men and women and children uh, created by God, provided graciously for, by God, his Im- image bearers to a lost and dying world, we as Christians have the God-given duty to, go, to actively go into the places where the fabric is breaking down, where the ve- where weaker and vulnerable members of society are falling through, where the interwovenness, where the interdependence isn't happening, where shalom is breaking down, And in amongst those situations, we are to be a people who take all the threads of our lives, our time, our money, our skills, our emotions, our prayers, our compassion, our physical bodies, and to plunge them deeply into the lives of other people through thousands of involvements, connections, threads, over, under, behind, through. Working out diligently, joyfully, sacrificially, generously, God's shalom in this world. And so therefore, it's not just stinginess or a lack of charity not to do these things. No way. It's unjust. A lot of us see charity as something that's optional, you see, if I feel like it. But justice, Jubilee, is obligatory. It's compulsory. It's how God intends you to live with people who are your family, your own flesh and blood. Is that how you see it? You see, when I think of myself as a successful GP, I can very often, in fact I do very often, get into the trap of thinking, uh, of thinking you know what, I deserve who I am. I deserve to be who I am. I, I've worked hard. I've made the right choices. I've studied hard. I've made sacrifices. Me, me, me. I did better than you lot. That was my, this was all my doing. Well done, Raj. Pat on the back. I fall into that trap quite regularly. But you know what? When I really think about it, God slaps me with the truth. It hurts. Yeah, I've worked hard. Yeah, I've made some good choices. But bottom line, the main reason I have made it to where I have, if I'm really honest, is mainly due to the things that have been totally out of my control. Totally God's grace to me. The fact that I live in England in the 21st century, the fact that I have the right to education and funding, the freedom that this government gives me, the fact that my parents encouraged me and spent their whole lives on me, as did their parents and their parents' parents, the fact that food has always been on the table, these are far 
by far the bigger, the real reasons for, why, for what I have and what I do. And do you know what? If I'm not prepared to share some of the advantages that this unjust world has dealt me with those on the other side, then that in itself is unjust. Isn't it? So where are we? Firstly, generous justice is important to God. It's a sign of real faith and the relationship with God. Secondly, generous justice is not about just about my rights, me, 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 and being free to, what I, to do what I want to do regardless of others, but rather plunging myself, sharing myself and everything I have into the parts of the society where God's shalom is breaking down. So before we get to the final point, I'd just like to ask you a question. How are you feeling? Guilty, maybe? A bit condemned? We like doing this from time to time as preachers. It's, we get quite a buzz out of it, actually. <laughs> I'm just kidding. How on earth do you get anybody to live like this? It sounds great, doesn't it? But not many of us are good examples, me included. So how do you move from where we are to being a people whose life displays the generous justice of God and Isaiah 61 people? How do you get there? And that's my final point. It's all to do with motivation. What is it that's motivating you? If we're really honest, most of us, uh, for most of us, it's guilt or pride. You have so much, they have so little, don't feel bad. Don't you feel bad? Give it away. Help them appease your guilt. Or, you're better than that. You're better than them. You were brought up better than that. Come on, do more. If you feel that way, it tells a lot. It tells you a lot about your heart and my heart. And the problem is this. We can read all this stuff in the Bible uh, and in other religious or moral books and make them into a list of things I must do, things I should do just to get right with God, to be accepted by God. It's often subconscious, it's often hidden, but it's there, deep down. God's watching, others are watching. What will everyone think? A list of do-its. In fact, most religions and secular thinking is like that. And you might be surprised by this, but to, but, but Jesus says to that, Christianity says to that, stop it, no way, that's not right. Why? Because when you're motivated by guilt and pride, these are the things that do not change your heart. In fact, they poison your heart more. Because on the one hand, when you fail to keep up, because eventually you will, your failure will condemn you more. You'll feel even worse about yourself. And on the other hand, if you do manage to keep up for a while, you start, um, you start feeling all superior. If, they, if I can do it, why can't they do it? You can't win. You cannot get out of this conundrum. Neither guilt nor pride will ever change your heart long term. Why? Because both of these are all about you. Self-centeredness. And if we use more self-centeredness to mend God's broken shalom, which is broken because of self-centeredness in the first place, you know, it's just not going to work. It's not going to last. So how, 
Do we deal with the guilt, the pride, the self-centeredness? How do you move away from this, from this, uh, from, from, how do you move away from this, this, this problem? The answer is beauty. Beauty. To end, let me tell you about a man called Ernest Gordon. A few of you might have heard this in different settings over the last uh, few weeks, but most of you won't have. Ernest Gordon was a Scottish minister who became a prisoner of war in World War II. He wrote a book called Through the Valley on the River Kwai. And in it, he describes his experience along with other soldiers at the hands of Japanese soldiers as they were forced to build a jungle railroad um, where literally... Um, a thousand to a two thousand prisoners died every five miles of track that they built. It was actually called Death Railway. And this continuous hardship had a real effect on the people there. And this is what he says. As conditions steadily worsened, as starvation, exhaustion, and disease took an ever-growing toll, the atmosphere in which we lived was increasingly poisoned by selfishness, hatred, and fear. We were slipping rapidly down the scale of degradation. We lived by the rule of the jungle, red in tooth and claw, the evolutionary law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. The weak were trampled underfoot, the sick ignored or resented, the dead forgotten. When a man lay dying, we had no words of mercy. When he cried for help, we averted our heads. We had long since resigned ourselves to being derelicts. We were forsaken by men, forsaken by our families, by our friends, by our government. Now even God had left us. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged, angry. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got out his gun and threatened to kill everybody on the spot. It was obvious the officer meant what he said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up... Uh, the bloody corpse, and carried it with them to the second tool count. This time, no tool, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save others. The incident had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other like brothers. One man wrote in his journal, death was still with us, but we were being freed from its destructive grip. When eventually the victorious allies swept in, the survivors, almost really human skeletons by now, lined up in front of their enemies, and instead of attacking their enemies or their captors, insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness and love. Sacrificial love, Ernest Gordon writes, has transforming power. What happened? What happened? One man's sacrificial love suddenly changed a jungle into a family who saw each other as their own flesh and blood. In the midst of horror, they saw beauty 
sacrificial love beyond compare, and it changed them. And that was just a human being. Look, Jesus became poor for you. He became homeless for you. He became oppressed for you. If you're a victim of injustice or hardship, if you've been separated from your family, if you just don't know where the next meal is coming from, you know what? In Jesus, God himself became a victim of gross injustice too. As the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down uh, at the people forsaking him, denying him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in the universe, he stared. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, became fatherless as he cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took all our sin, all our guilt, all our self-centeredness, all our pride, everything that destroys that our intimate relationship with God, how it should be, and he took it all. Do you see it? Do you see it? He stepped forward for you. He was beaten into the ground for you so that you didn't have to be. He was dragged away, innocent before our very eyes. He did everything to make sure you didn't get what you deserve. Why? Why, Jubilee? So that you too could be a transformed community of sacrificial love, generous justice, overflowing compassion, a light in darkness, a city on a hill, totally transformed, totally beautiful again, hidden in his beauty and righteousness. What motivates generous justice? The beauty of Jesus does. It's as simple as that. Jubilee, every single day, get closer and closer to him. Let's stand there. If the band could come up, that would be great. Um.